Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Grid. I am so thrilled today to have Kara Scott on the show. Kara is a poker player, ESPN anchor, podcast host, and on a personal level, I love that she is an unapologetic advocate for human rights. She is also an 888 ambassador, and as I mentioned, the anchor for ESPN's WSOP main event coverage, where her interview skills and soothing vocals have become a mainstay of the brand. In 2020, she launched a podcast of her own, The Heart of Poker, which delighted me as it gave me some excellent listening material during these times. And also, I knew it was a great opportunity to get Kara on the grid. Um, She's had a lot of success in poker herself, including in the 2000s, where she had several deep runs at the WSOP and a huge score at the 2009 Irish Open, where this hand came from, 7-6 offsuit. So thank you, Kara, very much for joining me and helping me click off a cell on the grid that's a little bit offbeat. (laughs) Thanks for asking me to come on. It was really exciting. And when you mentioned it, uh, this hand immediately kind of popped into my head. So I'm glad to talk about it. I'm really excited about that because it is challenging to get some of those weird offsuit handles. Yeah. True, this one is connected, but still a lot of people's most memorable hand in poker is something with like aces, kings, queens, ace, king. So it's really Mm. nice when something weird sticks out people. So tell us a little bit about the context of this hand. Like how serious were you about poker at this time? What was the buy-in? How did you end up in the event? Well, this was in 2009 and I only like the first hand of Texas Hold'em I played was right at the end of 2005, like three and a half to four years after I'd started to play. I was mostly doing poker on television. I wasn't playing seriously. By no means was I a pro. Like I had no illusions about being a pro. But I loved playing and I loved playing live. And I think this was a big event for me. I think it was a 3,500 euro, which was down from what it used to be. Because the Irish Open is considered one of the, if not the premier event for European poker in particular. And yeah, I somehow made it all the way to the final table, despite having been down to two and a half big blinds at one point. (laughs) Managed to come back to the final table. Some really interesting people on that final table. William Kasouf was on that final table. He went out in sixth. And then, yeah, this hand, we were down to four-handed, and my opponent was Krister Johansson. For anyone who doesn't know, he is a fantastic player. He'd been playing a very long time. He had enormous results to his name. He was absolutely like a grinder, knew what he was doing. And I was terrified. And we were also playing on television too, which for me has always been really nerve wracking, knowing that people can see my cards and it was going out live as well to an audience in Ireland. So I'm under the gun with six, seven offsuit and I raised two and a half times um, the big blind and Christer three bets on the button. And he has queens. I don't know that, (laughs) obviously. And in my head, I'm thinking people are always trying to push me around. This is a problem that I have had 
for most of my poker career, assuming that people don't give me credit, that they're trying to push me around, that they think they can bully me. So I decided to call and try to take it away on a, on a future street. <laughs> and I flopped the straight, you know, which is pretty amazing. And I blink a lot. And then I bet he raises pretty fast all in. And then I call. Yeah, I actually had to double check my cards before calling him because I was like terrified that I made some kind of like hand reading error because this couldn't possibly be happening, you know, with a million, basically a million dollars for first place and I'm four handed and how could this happen? And then it goes runner, runner, split pot. (laughs) And then Krister, who didn't get knocked out in that hand and who would have been knocked out, goes on to win it and I come second. So this was kind of like one of the defining hands of my career. For sure. Wow. So Krista ended up winning. And, and by the way, that so the hand was, you have 7-6 offsuit yeah. and the flop is 4-5-8. So yeah. wow. I flopped it. Yeah. That must have been such a great feeling. And you just led into him because, you know, you weren't sure if he was going to bet at it. And what, mm-hmm. and then when he raises, you, you, you must have just felt like, how good can this get? Yeah. I thought, well, he actually had a hand. So <laughs> this is awesome, right? And I actually felt a little bad considering when I saw his hand, you know, because it's not a really great idea to raise pre-flop and then call a big three bet with six seven offsuit but it happened you know these things happen especially in the early part of your career and yeah I was really loving it and then you know the six seven fell counterfeited my hand and I just I remember I smiled a lot because that's kind of what I did under stress (laughs) I smiled a lot and I was just like oh well at least I'm not out you know it could be worse right right I could have gone queen Exactly. <laughs> five or something. Yeah. I thought that was really remarkable, actually, your composure. Maybe nowadays when people can understand the math and variants of poker and they've been around for a while, that type of composure when you lose a big flip or, you know, something weird happens, like a chop pot when you're way ahead, that might be more typical now. But when I look at, like, the composure you had in 2009 and how you just kind of smiled and, you know, congratulated him basically for chopping the five, <laughs> that's, that's really remarkable. I mean, that kind of... Um, excellent manners, I guess, in sportsmanship. Did that come naturally to you? I guess so. Um, It was actually something I kind of had to combat when I was first starting out in poker was I was overly polite. Like I'd feel bad sometimes, you know, winning pots against people who were having a whatever, a hard time or like I could see that they were struggling at the table. It was something I kind of had to just get over in my head as like a mental exercise and an emotional exercise as well. But I've always been pretty polite. I mean, I was kind of like the stereotypical Canadian thing. I (laughs) I was raised to be very polite, even, you know, when I had to recheck my cards when he shoved all in before I called, I rechecked my cards. And then I said to him, I'm so sorry, I wasn't slow rolling you. I just had to double check. I was like, I just want you to know this is not a slow roll. And he was like, yeah, obviously. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, well, that that makes sense. Because it's like when you have that when you have some kind of hand, like, you know, random also cards, you don't feel as attached to them yeah. as when you have queens or aces, so they're not as vivid in your brain, right? Yeah, for sure. And I do, you know, even at that time, I do struggle a little bit. I have actually have memory issues. So before we did this podcast, I had to go back and watch the hand. Thankfully, it's on a clip on YouTube, and I watched it and remind myself of what happened because I have um, really big memory gaps, and it impacts mostly my long-term memory, but there are times uh, when I'm under stress or when I'm very tired that it affects my short-term memory. And I have actually gotten to places in hands like you know day five of the world series main event where i'm exhausted where i literally can't remember how the hand started and that makes it really hard to play and it was actually when this started happening a lot more that i stopped playing as much as 
as I was, I was playing quite a bit at the time. And I just was like, yeah, this is ridiculous. If I can't remember what's happening, I probably shouldn't be playing, you know, semi-professionally. I'm going to go back to being a recreational player. And I was much more happy that way. But yeah, so I did, I did have to recheck my cards a lot, unfortunately. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess if you wanted to continue to play seriously, you would have to probably develop a system of checking them on every street, you know, consistently. Yeah, exactly. So that you're not giving away tiles and blah, blah, blah. And it was just, yeah, it just didn't seem feasible. You know, and I did hear you talk about that in your, in your own podcast, which I was going to get to later. But now that you mention it, your interview with Vanessa Selps, where you both commiserated mm. with having these short-term memory um, issues that could sometimes be perceived as, you know, rudeness if, some, if you yeah. forgot an important birthday or event or, mm-hmm. or secret that somebody told you. But this also manifested itself in poker. Yeah, it, it actually became – well, it, it was really frustrating for me with poker because there were actually times, yeah, where I'd be like, I don't remember – oh, God, I don't remember exactly how this hand started. And, like, some of those details obviously are pretty important based on, you know, what you're going to do on future streets. And it was when that started happening that I realized it was the, – the issue for me was getting a lot worse and I kind of had to find a way to address it. And, yeah, so – now I've just kind of given into the fact that I don't remember things. It means I can watch movies over and over again, which is weird. That's funny because, you know, sometimes when there's an absolutely epic series or movie, you kind of mm. are are jealous of people who haven't seen it yet, like The Wire or yeah. The Sopranos. It's like, yeah, that would be great to not know what happened <laughs> and be able to relive it all. You know, some of the, the smartest people I know um, have memory issues, though. Like, And I had, huh. for instance, I had... Bill Chen, who was definitely one of the smartest people in poker mm. and just in general, brilliant mathematician. And um, he he and I talked about memory on the podcast as well. And I, I think it's so fascinating because I can't help but think that for some people, having a memory problem is almost like a blessing because you're forced to be creative and dealing with it and, you know, it might cause insights or allow to like free up your brain, whereas a lot of other people have this mm. like random information in their heads. Yeah, I I think for me as well, it meant that I, um, and in a good way, it meant that I didn't pursue things as single-mindedly as I might have otherwise in terms of my career in broadcasting. Like I was offered a job doing some mainstream sports for a mainstream sports network in the States. And it was not a sport that I am completely familiar with. So I would have had to, you know, get up to speed because to me, I'm not going to just be, you know, asking stupid questions that someone else writes for me. That would just I would hate that so much. I need to understand what I'm talking about. And I just knew that it would be too difficult for me, that I, it would just, it would be exhausting. It would take over a lot of my life. And even though it would have been a great career move, it just wasn't the right thing for me on a personal level because of my memory issues. So I decided not to do it. And I mean, for a lot of people, I guess that's a really big negative. But for me, I actually think it's a good thing. It meant my life went in a different direction. My career goes in a different direction. And I'm happier pushing in different ways and not just being always like flat out trying to go for like the top possible success that I can. There's a lot more in my life that I focus on instead. And for me, that's good. I think that's brilliant because, you know, doing something excellently um, is often going to be better than taking the most prestigious opportunity and not being as excellent at at it. Mm. 
Uh, and I think mm-hmm. that's even more true now with the the way that media works and social media. It's like it just feels like that's so so smart and ahead of your time in some ways. What was the yeah. sport, or if you don't you don't want to reveal it? I think it was football, <laughs> but this is a really long time ago. This is like I don't know seven years ago, eight years ago. And for me, like I, I grew up Canadian, so hockey, fine, basketball, great, baseball, cool. I'm good with all of those, you know. But like American football for me, I just was like, ah, I don't really watch it. I'm sorry. <laughs> That is so amazing. I mean, I don't watch a lot of football either, but I know that we I have there are so many fans of you in poker and it would be just like such a, a thrill to see you in that role. And as a feminist, I I also um, know how prepared and, and intelligent you are in asking questions. So I can certainly see like, while it, it's great to, to have kept you in the poker world, like I can imagine this multiverse oh. where you were <laughs> in football and you kind of, I would probably watch football then. Oh, well, thank you. Um, yeah, it would have been a different way to take my life. I would still be living in the States. I would, you know, like my whole life would be different. So it's one of those sliding doors kind of things. Let's go back to the hand before we completely move on because mm. you're always very modest, Kara, but you did win over $400,000 in this tournament. <laughs> Yeah, it was a pretty good win. <laughs> yeah, how did you feel about that? And like, in which ways did it concretely change your life? I mean, I'd already had a win on television, actually. I I won something called like the Sports Star Challenge, which was a nice chunk of money. And then I went deep at the World Series of Poker. But this was by far like the most that I'd ever won at one shot at all. So I paid off my debts and that was really good. I'd actually, I'd had a really tough few years before this really tough actually and so I had a lot of debts that I'd accrued and I'd been paying off bit by bit I was able to just wipe everything away and have kind of a fresh start but I remember when it happened um so the money obviously the casino kind of holds it for you and then you send them your details and they you know send it over to you and it was so surreal to me like it felt so completely surreal and not part of my life that I didn't even contact them to send the money to me for like a couple of weeks a friend of mine had to be like, okay, Kara, you're being ridiculous. Just do this. And I think part of me was scared that it just, it like wasn't true. Like it meant so much to me. It meant so much to my life to, to have this cushion, to be able to kind of leave a, a job that wasn't working for me and be able to kind of branch out on my own. And I guess I was just a little bit scared to trust that it was true, which is, I, it must sound a bit crazy now, but yeah, at the time, it was just a little too much. Because you're Canadian, right? So the, the mm. debts that a lot of Americans w- are unfortunately very familiar with, like student debt and healthcare and stuff, like mm. that can amount to such massive amounts. Yeah. Did you have anything in your life that had accrued to such a large amount that you had to spend most of the 400k on it? Oh, God, no, thankfully, no. I was very lucky with that. Yeah, I was living in this in um, England at the time as well. I was living in London, which meant that, you know, uh, poker then was not a taxable whatever. You put it on your tax returns, obviously, that you'd won this money, but it wasn't taxable income, which was awesome. So I like, you know, there were pieces that went out and I'd swapped with a few people and whatever. Uh, but the rest of it was for me. And then I paid off these debts that had come kind of just needed to get cleared away. And most of it was due to the fact that I actually had bought um, with my first husband, we'd bought a flat in London and we just got really hosed on it. (laughs) It had this terrible lease and we couldn't get the lease changed and we couldn't sell the thing. And it was just going like it was in negative value. And then I was going to go bankrupt. And it was like a whole thing. It was really bad. Um, And this just kind of allowed me to wipe all of that away because I had to take on a bunch of debt just to get rid of that problem. So that was like 
a breath of fresh air for me. It was like such a relief. It changed my whole life. Absolutely. I mean, being able to just, you know, take a mistake and erase it because of something, um, you know, great that happened to you. But this this particular hand, and you could say that you started out getting lucky and then you got unlucky um, by the river, really shows like your, your personality and <laughs> your composure. But I, I got to ask earlier in the event, you know, getting yourself to the final table, there's anything that you can say was your biggest talent in poker? Because not only did you, do really well in this event but you also back to back had deep runs in the main event that was in 08 and 09 um what was your your biggest gift in poker I think thankfully I had good instincts so because a lot of the time I couldn't rely on memory and even you know players I'd played against for a long time I wouldn't be able to concretely say they have done this in these spots I've seen these hands turned over I would have to go with my feeling about them because I wouldn't be able to remember the actual details so thankfully <laughs> I have pretty good instincts I'm not sure if that's the same as it as it used to be I don't think it is but at the time I was really in a way kind of clued into what was happening at the table and that was where I I really succeeded. I had a, a partner at the time and he used he was very good at poker and he used to tell me that uh, I was the best player who never worked on their game at all <laughs> that he'd ever seen. And I always thought that was both funny and a little insulting, but you know. <laughs> Why insulting? Because you actually were working on your game? Yeah, just not in the same way, but that's fair. That's fair. For someone who worked on his game all the time, I could see why he would say that. It was pretty funny. And so when you say good instincts, you just mean generally the like what we would think of as having a gut instinct when your opponent was bluffing or value betting? Yeah, I think I was very good at gathering information and kind of processing it in a way that I may not have been able to access in terms of like, this is the range of hands that this player would play in this spot because of what I've seen. And I've seen this many hands where he's shown down in these spots and blah, blah, blah. Like that's not stuff I would be able at the time to say, or now my brain, unfortunately doesn't retain that kind of information, but I would be able to like, my brain is still processing that information. And thankfully I was good at being able to process it and have that like this is a situation where I think this person is whatever, doing X, Y, or Z. And a lot of the time, my ego would get in the way. Obviously, like, I did not put him on queens. <laughs> I honestly was thinking, you know, this is probably one of those situations where I'm the only woman at the table and I haven't been playing very long and there's a bunch of pros. They think I'm just going to fold. And so they're just trying to push me around. And that's my own, <laughs> that's my own bias that comes through there. And that would get in the way. But you know, a lot of the time I had good instincts. I mean, I'm sure there were other hands in this event where people were three betting you a lot. So it was based on some kind of pattern recognition, even if not immediate memory. Yeah. yeah, pattern recognition is how I used to actually describe it. And it was something that I really loved. And I always loved playing games that involved kind of pattern recognition as well. And I found them very soothing. And I, you know, I kind of enjoy that whole process. Um, I was also very aggressive at the time and people, you know, wouldn't have expected it from me. So I think I got a lot more credit than I deserved some of the times for my hands. Um, but yeah, like I said, there was a situation where I got down to, I think it was two and a half big blinds and we were still maybe three tables or four tables um, left in the tournament. And it was because of a big bluff and it obviously went wrong and it took him forever to call though. And so, you know, it wasn't a terrible bluff. I was pretty aggressive and it got me pretty far, thankfully. Yeah, and I've seen you on TV playing back in the days where I felt like you were also pretty um, ahead of your time in some way with like push fold strategy. It seemed to me like I saw you in some sometimes where you were short stacked and you really were um, 
you knew like how many big blinds you should be jamming with and stuff more perhaps than other players. I I I, I don't know. That seemed to be my observation. Is it true that huh. you studied that or not? Not so much. I mean, I did a bit, but not as much as as a lot of people have. Um, by the time that kind of became more of a thing that people talked about in terms of strategy, I wasn't playing quite as much at that point. So yeah, but I did have in my head an idea of like this is this is what you know the effective stack is. This is the kind of I guess range. Although I'm not sure I would have thought of it in terms of ranges at the time. Um, this is the range of hands that I'm going to be shoving, and this is the range of hands I'll be folding or. But I don't think I, it was not a, a super conscious thing for me. So after you won this 400K, did you think about becoming super serious about poker and just kind of like dropping the hosting, anchoring, commentary side and like just becoming the best poker player in the world? God, no. <laughs> no, not ever. I've never, ever, ever thought about becoming a pro. <laughs> Like one of the things about my job is that I spend my time around a lot of pros and I get to ask them all the questions and I spend hours and days at poker tournaments watching them play. And I know how much work it is. Like I see them talking about it. I see the study. I understand how much goes into it. And it's just not something that I was willing to do because it meant that I would have to give up, like you say, my broadcasting career. And for me, that is the first love. That's my passion. That's my career. I never actually had a dream about going pro. I love playing and I loved playing so much back then I used to get to play a ton which was amazing for like sponsorship deals and meant that I got to play a certain amount of events and all over the world I've played events that I mean I had no right being in for those buy-ins but it was amazing um but yeah no there's never a time I wanted to go pro or thought that I had what it took to go pro really but for a few years there where you were really successful in poker, both in the Irish Open and in the main event of the World Series, mm. um, you actually had broke some records for being like the first female to cash so deeply in back-to-back main events. Huh. As, as a feminist, that must have felt really good to you, huh? I don't remember if I knew that at the time, to be honest. I guess if it was a big deal at the time, I guess I would have known that. I remember I was sad that I didn't get to be the last woman standing, even though that's kind of a silly title. I was still, you know, a little like, bummed because it would it was a, it was a milestone you know on the way to the final table that I was looking for I loved being able to be good at poker I'll be honest like having success felt amazing and it just felt really good to be at the tables when things were going right um but I just didn't have the discipline for when things weren't going right to go back study super hard do all the the work that needs to be done if you're going to be a great player you have to not just kind of ride the highs you have to be able to dig down and and do all the hard study and that I think is what really makes pros stand out for the hard work that they do. It's hard work. I've seen it. I've seen it so much that I I kind of know that's just not who I am. When you are doing your broadcasting for both ESPN and for 888, do you feel like all that work um, gives you a lot of insight when you do play? Like what kind of things um, do you think that you pick up on potentially like tells wise from being on both sides of that? Huh. It's funny because when I was first starting out, I heard this story about like one of the first big televised European events that I think, I think the one that John Duffy won. And people used to say they wondered if he could tell like the strength of people's hands based on which red lights were on which cameras because he was a TV director. Like, (laughs) I remember thinking how funny that was because yeah, it would be something that we would never have even thought about in, in European television poker at the time. Um, and he's a great director and a great poker player, too. And, you know, I loved working with him when I did. But uh, I don't know. I guess, you know, there's nothing that really stands out in my mind for, like, 
understanding tells and all of that. Cause I don't tend to watch all of the poker that's happening when I'm at work. I'm listening to it. I've got an earpiece in and I'll be listening to the table talk and I'll be listening to the dealer, but I'm also working on other stuff at the time. So I don't really get to, you know, unless I turn around in my chair and I look at the flop and I check out what's happening, I don't really get to see it. Um, until I'm kind of watching it back before I do an interview. <laughs> you know, that's funny, that game integrity issue with cameras. You know, I'd never thought of that. That like, right? if a lot of cameras are swarming around a table, that they're also, they mm. have earpieces and they might know that the hand is going to be critical and somebody's going to get knocked out. That's cr- Yeah, it's it's not the same anymore. I should say that because um, because of game integrity, we don't know, like all of us with earpieces, we just don't know. They're just trying to like go for famous faces or big stacks. And so nobody has to worry. (laughs) That's not something that you should be paying attention to when you're at the tables for the main event of the World Series of Poker now. But, you know, back in the day, 15 years ago or whatever, maybe for televised poker, we weren't thinking about it so much. Right. Okay. So now, yeah, they're not allowed to do that because it would be too easy to, um, you know, figure stuff out from that. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Oh, wow. So I wanted to move on to talk a little bit about your new podcast, The Heart of Poker, um, which I, I was really excited to um, to see that you came out with a podcast because it it has such a unique format. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. And thanks for giving me a shot to kind of talk about it because it, it is something that I'm really excited about. It's called The Heart of Poker. So it's really about um, getting to the heart of the people behind the cards. It's not a poker strategy podcast in any way, shape or form. And we never really talk poker almost at all. What it is, is about 25 years ago, a group of psychologists came up with a list of 36 progressively more personal questions that two strangers could sit down and ask each other like on a pseudo date. And then maybe they would fall in love. They wanted to test this to see if you could hack intimacy and get strangers to fall in love. So I love this idea. The New York Times did an article on this whole study like five years ago, I think. And I remember reading it and being fascinated. So when I got the opportunity from 8 at 8 to like do a podcast, I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. I want to sit down and it's a modified list. Obviously, 36 questions would just take forever. But I asked them some of these questions and it really is kind of diving into their their personality their like their childhood what their dreams are what they're scared of like it's the kind of questions you'd want to ask someone I guess on a first date and my hope is to make the poker audience fall in love with these people in a totally new way and uh, yeah I hope that's happening (laughs) well yeah I think it's I think it's great and I just love how the questions are are so intimate and you know, as you listen to you and your guests talk about them, you can't help but kind of like daydream about what you and your loved ones would say mm. also, which just is a really nice experience. It's also like a great escape because sometimes I feel like there's a lot of uh, podcasts right now that focus a lot on news, even even when they're about hobbies like sports, because obviously mm. there's still a lot of intersection with the news. So this just feels very like intimate and also a kind of very bubble experience, which is nice. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of wanted it to be that way. So it's sort of not set in time in any way. Um, I was assuming that I was going to travel a lot this year for poker. (laughs) So I wanted to do most of them live with the people. It's only audio podcasts, but still looking at someone in the face and kind of maybe having a drink while you do it changes the feeling of it, really, rather than doing it over the internet. Um, But obviously nobody's traveling, so that's not going to happen. But (laughs) I just 
remembered that nobody gets to travel and I got sad. Sorry, what were we talking about? Well, you're ta- I wanted to add, go back to the genesis of the podcast. So you read this article in the New York Times, say, like five years ago, and 888 asked you to do a podcast. Like, at what point did these two ideas connect? Did you, like, you know, just brainstorm with your husband or a friends or 888 team? Or did it – did you already kind of have it in your back pocket and, you know, you were looking for the right opportunity to spring it out? They told me that they wanted me to start something for 2020, and it was just before the end of last year. And there wasn't a lot of time because they wanted me to do the first episode with Chris Mormon in London live when I was there with him. And it was like 10 days away or something. I really did just have to brainstorm as much as possible. And I, I'm really lucky because I'm not doing the technical side of it. That's all Matt Schowell, who I think a lot of people in poker know. He's fantastic at what he does. And he, he and his, his own company now in Canada, they're doing the editing for me. And he's also consulting with me on it. So we just kind of by WhatsApp talked back and forth and we're like throwing ideas around. And then I said, well, this is something I've been thinking about. And we fleshed it out together. And it was nice to have him to really bounce ideas off of. So you were messaging with Matt Scholl and it somehow at some point, like you just mentioned this idea and then it just kind of hit. Yeah, yeah, it just kind of rang true because we were saying like we don't want to do something that's already being done really well. So like there's so many great podcasts, yours included, in this game and there's a lot of great strategy podcasts already. That's not my niche. That's not going to be something that I'm going to really bring something interesting and new to. So what I love to do with poker and my interviews is I really enjoy getting to know the people. That's kind of my thing. When I do the World Series main event, the day before the final table, I get to talk to all of the final tableists. And I just sit down with my little voice recorder and I ask them all the questions that I want to ask. And then that is the information that I use to do my my pieces to camera. So I write it all up, like who he has on the rail or what this means to his family or, you know, whatever. And in that time, I always find that I like... I I feel warm and affectionate towards a lot of the players because they're really opening up to me in a different way. And I get to see kind of inside their mind and inside their heart and their family and understand what this might mean to them in a different level. And I wanted to translate that into the podcast. I wanted to like, I don't know, give the poker listeners that experience that I just really value in my job. And I did look up the list um, before this interview. And there's one I know that you, you don't, you, you actually, I think you, you mentioned it, but you didn't actually directly ask somebody, but it's a, it's a brutal one. Like what the person in your life that you would be most devastated if they died. <gasps> yeah. <laughs> and I know for you and I, it would be so easy. So it wouldn't be that hard. easy. We're, we're yeah, moms of, of one. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's no choice there. <laughs> but but for a lot of people, it would be very difficult. So like that, that's that. But it's interesting that's on the list. And I guess that's, that's why that kind of taboo um, question mm-hmm. can get you really close to somebody, right? Because you're telling, you're talking about the unspeakable in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And you're doing it at the end or towards the end, because there's three sets of questions that you kind of break it into really easy kind of icebreakers and then more middling questions and then the really personal ones at the end. And I think you have to work your way up to those, like whether it's a date or whether it's a podcast, because if you just kind of dive in with that, people are going to be like, yeah, that's just that's a little over the line. You know, it's it's not an appropriate question. You really have to gauge it. So I have a bunch of questions kind of in front of me. And then based on how I think it's going, those are like, I kind of pick and choose from those. If you were playing poker, and there was a Mm. question on the list that you could ask someone like in a hand, I know you would never actually do this, but just like (laughs) hypothetically, to help you know whether the opponent was bluffing or not, like, which one do you think would be like, so disarming that you could just like read somebody right away from it? 
Huh. Gosh, that's a really good question. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, when's the last time you've know. been terrified? Right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if you could if you could bring in somebody outside of poker and do the same thing, like do you, like who would you be like your absolute top person that you could have this like super intimate experience for that was, was also kind of like in a vacuum? Someone I'd love to interview would be Patrick Stewart, Star Trek, The Next Generation, Picard. For me, that would just be like amazing because I grew up just kind of like loving Star Trek and in a way kind of being raised by it too. Um, so yeah, for me, that would be the one, but I'm not sure that would be you know interesting for people in poker. Um, but yeah, other people that I'd love to do that with, like someone like Jackie Chan, who was a childhood hero for me. Um, yeah, <laughs> I got some, some interesting childhood heroes. <laughs> yeah, no, those, are, those are great options. Um, but it, it, your voice is, is great. And not only do you have a great voice for commentary and for anchoring, but it also seems like your voice is sometimes used as like the theme, like the voice of the program. So <laughs> is that is that natural? Or have you done some training on that? Um, I used to do voiceover, actually. I um, Yeah, when I lived in London, I was a voiceover artist and I did some books on tape and all kinds of things like that. And I was never happier than when in a sound booth with like the cans on my ears and just kind of playing around with different kinds of sounds. I really loved that. When you're talking about being the voice of the program, it was actually a couple of years ago when I was on my maternity leave and I couldn't be in Vegas for the first time since I'd started in poker and since I'd been working for the World Series and they actually asked me if I'd record it like the billboards the the like this is sponsored by from home and I did that on my iPhone under a blanket on the sofa while the baby was napping and it was nice because they were like well we just want you to feel like you're still involved and and it was it was such a a lovely gesture that I was I mean, I was hormonal as fuck as, sorry, as, as anything at the time. And, and also just kind of cried my eyes out because I was like, oh, this is so nice. But yeah. <laughs> it is amazing. I can't believe that you recorded that on an iPhone in a blanket. But I guess post-production. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, they can make it sound good. <laughs> Fix it all in post. It's fine. <laughs> Shout out to my producer. is my husband, Daniel Morom, <laughs> and to Quinn. who they, all, they always make things sound even better than they are. But yeah, no, so you obviously did have a lot of sound background. That's that's good to know that it's something you really worked on, that you know you weren't just like, you didn't just wake up one morning with like the perfect modalities and everything. <laughs> well, I don't think I have the perfect modalities, but I appreciate you saying that. Um, but yeah, I don't do it as much as I used to, which is too bad because I miss it. It was something I really loved. I was I used to live in Parma in Italy, and I was the English voice of the Parma Ham Museum. That was something very close to my heart. I was very, very proud of. <laughs> so you did the, like, if you get the headsets to... Yeah. Oh, wow. That's me. <laughs> so if you're ever in Parma doing, like, the food museum tours, and you're like, oh, that that woman's voice sounds very familiar, that would be me. So When did you live there? That was a few years ago? It was a while ago. It was, like, eight years ago, I guess. Five, wow. Yeah. You've lived yeah. in so many places. Yeah. How many different <laughs> cities have you lived in your career? Um, gosh, I don't know. Uh, I know I counted at one point, and I... It was like I, when I was like 38, I'd counted that I'd lived in something like 40 different homes, which is crazy and really exhausting, I have to say. Um, I'm trying not to do that anymore, but we just moved into our forever home in Italy and then we got stuck with the quarantine about to hit and we we're like, ah, uh, yeah, we shouldn't be here in the city up in the north. So we've left our forever home and this is home number, I don't know. 
45 so <laughs> our temporary quarantine house but yeah I'm not even sure how many cities I've lived in I, I was born in Canada I lived in London and Brighton over in England then in Parma and Slovenia and Santa Barbara and then yeah Padua now and now we're down in Calabria so yeah it's been a whirlwind well thank you so much you know for taking time to go over this hand seven six off and tell us a little bit about your you know early beginnings in the on the poker field and then of course your your new podcast the heart of poker I always look forward to listening to the episodes and you also have a social media profiles on Kara OTR mm-hmm. and your Instagram as well. Like what's the best place to follow you to make sure that we're updated on all of your projects and your pods? Um, probably Twitter if you want the more um, unvarnished side of Kara. <laughs> it can be a little bit direct or on Instagram if you want something a little more polished and a little more, you know, work and uh, yeah, a little more professional. So but yeah, and thank you for saying that. It's been really lovely to be on this with you because, you know, I'm a fan of your work. I think that you do a great job and, I mean, award-winning, by the way. I'll just slip that in there. Yes, well, it is Kara Scott on 7-6 Offsuit from the Irish Open over a decade ago. And she is the host of The Heart of Poker. And, of course, you know her from the WSOP coverage on ESPN. Thanks again to Kara. Thank you so much for listening to The Poker Grid. Go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast network. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. We also really appreciate your reviews and ratings. They really do help. We also have a new mailing list, so go ahead and subscribe to that on thepokergrid.com slash subscribe. Finally, if you're looking for a way to support me and my projects, I'm the Women's Program Director at US Chess, and we're trying to equalize the field in the mind sports arena. You can go to uschess.org and pick a donation of any size. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to The Poker Grid as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent.